Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRB classics. I'm Cassia. And I'm Dylan. Our book this week is Zama by Antonio Di Benedetto. It was originally published in 1956. Zama takes place in the last decade of the 18th century and describes the solitary, suspended existence of Don Diego de Zama, a highly placed servant of the Spanish crown who has been posted to Asuncion in remote Paraguay. Eaten up by pride, lust, petty grudges, and paranoid fantasies, Don Diego does as little as he possibly can while plotting an eventual transfer to Buenos Aires, where everything about his hopeless existence will, he is confident, be miraculously transformed and made good. Don Diego's slow, nightmarish slide into the abyss is not just a tale of one man's perdition, but an exploration of existential and very American loneliness. And Zama was translated from Spanish by our guest, Esther Allen. She is a writer and professor and won the National Translation Award for this book in 2017. Welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you on. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on everything you've been doing with the show. It's really an honor and a pleasure to be here with you guys. Oh, thank you so much. Um, So just to start out, we were wondering how you came to de Benedetto and how you came to translate this book? Oh, well, it's quite a saga. Um, I, you know, we, we just held a memorial at the CUNY Graduate Center for a man named Burton Pike, who translated The Man Without Qualities by Robert Musil, um, that, that huge, oh, you know, 1500-page yeah. translation. And he left us at the age of 93 last year. So mm. we had a big gathering for him. And what I realized about him was that he had written a book about Robert Musil in 1961. And then in 1975, he published an op-ed in the New York Times that said, we need you, Robert Musil. Like, can you imagine the op-ed page of the New York Times had an editorial about how the United States <laughs> needed Robert Musil. And that was 1971. And then his translation came out in 1995. So he had literally spent like, you know, 35 years of his life paving the way for that translation. And sometimes you really have to work very hard to create a context for something, you know, before you can ever even translate it. Mm. And it wasn't just me. There were like huge Mm. numbers of people that were working on, I think, creating this context, Um, beginning with this wonderful woman named Gabriela Adamo, who's actually now getting a doctorate in Buenos Aires, specializing in international translation patterns. But 20 years ago, she was working for something called the Fundación Tipa. And she's organized something called the Semana de Editores y Traductores de Buenos Aires, where in order to promote Argentine literature, which is one of the great literatures of the world, but had sort of fossilized around Borges and Cortázar, you know, who made it big in the boom. And so there was this sense of, you know, what Argentine literature was, but new writers were not getting through. So she organized this thing where every year she would bring editors and translators from all over the world. And I was lucky enough to be involved in that, I think in like 2004. And um, so I was there for a week. It was like Argentine literature boot camp. It was strenuous. It was like (laughs) you were up at eight in the morning and you were meeting with writers and you were meeting with editors and you were going to publishing houses and you were going to magazines and you were going to museums. It was like, whoa, (laughs) can we just 
can we just take a break <laughs> for 15 minutes? You know, there you are in the tango club at 3 a.m. going, Argentina is intense. <laughs> and and I thought I knew something about Argentine literature, but what I realized is that there's this whole, you know, body of like exiled writers that we know. And then um, the writers that are in Argentina, we don't know. And uh, and so I made some major discoveries and I had yeah. literally never heard of Antonio Di Benedetto before I went on that week. And, and it was the 50th anniversary of the publication of Zama, the original publication of Zama. So it wasn't 2004, it was 2006, actually, oh. it was 2006. So, and everyone kept talking about this novel, but nobody actually had a copy of it. I, I think it was about to be reprinted or something. So all the places that we would went where they would heap us up with books, I didn't get Zama. I got uh, the two other novels in the trilogy, El Silenciero and Los Suicidas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I heard, and, and his short stories, and I heard everywhere we went, everyone talked about him. And I thought, this is so weird. I thought I knew Argentine literature. I'm a translator of Borges. I like, I'm a Latin American specialist. And everybody in this country is talking about a writer I've never heard of before. Yeah. Um, so that was very eye-opening for me and got me very interested in him. And I also advised Gabriela Adamo. She had this stricture that she would only invite people who spoke Spanish on this tour. And I said to her, you know, where U.S. literature is concerned, you're really missing out because the editors that would benefit most from this might not speak Spanish. And you'd be a lot better off inviting them anyway and just putting a graduate student at their shoulder, you know, to interpret. And Uh so she decided she decided to take me up on that. Um, I think I convinced her and other people had been suggesting the same thing. And so she invited after that um, Barbara Epler, who discovered Cesar Ira. You know, it was like oh, cool. a big discovery. Oh, that was wow. my other big yeah. discovery when I was in Buenos Aires. I don't translate Cesar Ira, but he's one of my absolute favorite writers. And I and literally I had not read him. I had like seen his work in bookstores before I did that. Um, and then she invited Edwin Frank. And <gasps> Edwin went, Edwin went. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Edwin Frank. <laughs> and Edwin went to Buenos Aires. and had, I mean, Buenos Aires is just one of the great cities of the world. You cannot fail to be overwhelmed by Buenos mm. Aires when you go. And he <laughs> got a copy of Sama. This is by this time we're like 2008, 2009. He got a copy of Sama. He sent it to me when he got back and said, will you do a reader's report on this? And I had been like reading around in De Benedetto before that. And I found it so mm. opaque. I found it very opaque. Yeah. I, I, you know, I had a uh, strangely, weirdly, I had the same experience with Bolaño. Like I kind of started on the Bolaño monster from the wrong angle. Sure. And, you know, the first few things that I read, I didn't get it. It didn't grab me. And I was like, what is going on here? And I sort of had that with the Benedetto. And then Edwin sent me Zama. And I think I wrote like a 10 page reader's report, the first line of which is, this is a masterpiece. You know? <laughs> and, and then everything kind of <laughs> fell into place around it, you know, the way that it was sometimes happen with a writer. Like there's one work, and then you go, oh, this is what they're doing, you know? And then everything yeah. else that was opaque to you before starts to make sense and connect and so um and then edwin asked me to translate it um so yeah that was how that was how that translation happened 
Um, a lot, That's a lot incredible. of legwork, wow. a lot of preparation by a lot of people had to happen in order for that translation to happen. That's a fascinating yeah. journey you yeah. went on to arrive here, yes. and you're still going yes. on it, right? You're still yeah, working. Yeah, uh, the suicides. I, I've handed in the manuscript, and it's being edited and it's slated for publication next year. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Next year. Yes. Okay. Oh, that's exciting. Okay. Um, well, we usually start with a little background on the author. Um, I assume you know yeah. much more than, than we do and we'll get into. But um, he was born in 1922 in Mendoza, Argentina. He started out his career as a journalist, published his first book, a short story collection, in 1953. Zama is one of his, I believe, five novels, and it is considered his greatest work. During Argentina's military dictatorship, he was imprisoned and tortured for reasons that maybe no one's entirely sure why. Um, and following his re release, he went into exile in Spain and finally returned to Buenos Aires near the end of his life. Having spent so much time in his work, what about his life stands out to you? It seems like his career and his biography are intertwined or speak to each other an echo in different ways. Well, I think there's an aspect to his life that that I think is sort of almost reflected in his prose style, which is that he's very unusual in Argentine literature. Argentina being a bit like France or Mexico or or you know even the United States, we just have to have a couple of urban centers that ambitious young people might go to, right? Like you could move to. Los Angeles, or you could move to New York. In Argentina, pretty much anybody who has cultural ambition is going to go to Buenos Aires, just as in France, you'll go to Paris. In Mexico, you'll go to Mexico City. Um, mm. And so in this hugely centralized society where everything sort of emanates out from the urban center, he doesn't go there. He never moves to Argentina until like, to Buenos Aires mm. until like two years before his death. He lives in Mendoza, which is relegating himself to marginalization, right. um, you know, kind of deliberately relegating himself mm -hmm. to marginalization. And he, at the same time, is kind of traveling all over the world because he's a journalist. So, you know, he's like at the Academy Awards, you know, when the Sound of Music wins yeah. the Academy Award, you know, he's in LA for that. Yeah. Or, or you know, or he's in France or he's in, and he seems actually to have prized he seems to have sort of felt like he wanted to gain um, an international reputation almost before a national reputation, right? He wanted oh. to sort of bypass Buenos Aires, which actually mm. did happen a little bit because one of because Zama was translated into German during his lifetime, and actually had enormous success. In fact, if I ever meet Werner Herzog, I want to say to him did you read Zama in that early German translation? And is that what led to, you know, all of your crazy German speaking <laughs> conquistadores? You know, yeah, like the Aguirre. Such as, exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, it had this big success in Germany. And I think that that was really the kind of career that he wanted. And that by the 60s, you know, the boom writers, the big boom writers were ha were kind of having that kind of career, right? Mm. Um but he didn't have that kind of career after that one success in Germany. He didn't have it at home and he didn't have it abroad. So he's clearly this hugely ambitious person in terms of his own art, 
but um, he is not a promoter of himself. Um, sure. Which is why it's so funny that that in Sansini, you know, he's applying for all these prizes. He's like submitting to yeah. all these prizes, which if you think about it, like no writer who has any real reputation would ever submit for a writing prize, right? Like, I don't think, you know, like, I don't think right. like the major writers of any culture are like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go up for the small, you know, regional newspapers writing prize. Sure. So in a way, even that act of self-promotion, which is submitting for a prize, is also sort of self-abnegation um, in, in, mm-hmm. in the funny way that it's expressed in that story. And I think that his writing, too, is sort of like doesn't try to be flashy, you know, mm-hmm. in that way, doesn't try to doesn't try to like grab you by the collar and say, you are in the presence of great literature. You know, <laughs> this extraordinary understatedness mm. and sort of um, attention to silences and just someone who's almost interested in passing unperceived. Right. Um, like kind of like, go mm. ahead, don't pay any attention to me, you know. Uh, which is an unusual, an unusual stance for a writer to have. Very, very much so. Yeah. But he's also kind of waiting for someone to pay attention. Right. <laughs> right. There is always yeah. the hope that it might happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, and it did, you know, I mean, I think something like a sto- having a story like Sensini written about him would probably be like one of the greatest satisfactions, you know, that, that someone true. had sort of understood him on that level. Yeah. And um, for those that don't know, and we'll talk about this a little bit later as well, but Bologna Sensini, or Sensini is a essay slash short story from Roberto Bologna about a man named Sensini who wrote a book called Ugarte which is basically just De Benedetto and Zama itself and sort of Bolaño's interaction with the work and the man. Moving on from the man, we always like to talk about the cover art, though. This is a very interesting NYRB classic because most don't come with a write-up on the cover included in the book, but this one does. And I think it's for good reason. The photograph on the cover is showing some cacti in the foreground. In the background, we can see a snaking river going, when you really look at it closely, going hundreds of miles it's it's a little uh, nerve-wracking to look at uh, and it was taken by the uh, italian photographer uh, guido bujani and he was very interested in the study and representation of the indigenous peoples and while traveling through Par- paraguay where he took hundreds of pictures he disappeared and a search party later found him and his assistant dead their skulls crushed and their heads severed by what seemed to be a ceremonial axe of a native tribe they'd been living with his negatives were covered and later published, and that is including this one. So I think when you get to the end of Zama and you read this sort of, uh, you know, cover art explanation, it hits you really hard. Um, <laughs> were, you, were you at all in the, do you remember this uh, photograph being picked out? Were you part of the selection? What, what, what do you think it oh, says f- for the book? Well, um, a fr- no, the, 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 the cover was always a huge concern of mine, um, mm-hmm. just because 
I mean, mm. I, honestly, if, if we had a visual here, I would take you through a number of Di Benedetto book covers and they are one more appallingly bad than the other. <laughs> like it's like this man was a victim oh, no. of some of the worst cover art. There are all these covers of Zama that make it look like it's a romance novel or there are covers oh, of no. Zama that make it look like it's like a comedy, you know? And the German cover, the really successful German cover is just like these fingers, these giant fingers, you know, because of the end of the book. <laughs> sure. It's like a conquistador with his oh, like giant right. fingers in the foreground. And it's hideously ugly. Um, and so I just, as I was doing my research for the translation, and I, I kept being struck by just the the just dire ugliness of these covers, but then thinking like, what <laughs> would what would your cover be? You know, what could you do for a cover? And a friend of mine was actually going to Paraguay, um, and he because his brother was in the State Department. Um, the the oh, historian wow. Francois Furstenberg was going to Paraguay, and I said, "Man, I'm translating this novel. It's set in 18th century Paraguay. If you see anything." in Paraguay that looks like it could be, you know, that's like visually, you know, that somehow says Paraguay or that catches your eye, please tell me about it, take a picture of it, bring it. And so he brought back this collection of photographs by Bogiani. And when I read the story of this collection where these were made on glass plates and they were literally buried Mm -hmm. And then disinterred decades later by a Czech anthropologist mm -hmm. who was like following in the footsteps of this early anthropologist and only then developed for the first time, that, like not to mention the fate of the person who took the photograph. I, and I also love the anachronism of using a photograph to illustrate a novel about the 18th century because one of the things that people say right, about right. Zama is that it's a historical novel that refutes the very idea of a <laughs> historical novel. So, so mm -hmm. I, I, as soon as he put this thing in my hands, I was like, I have no idea how you managed to find exactly what I needed, but you did. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, there was just no doubt you know, that that had to be the cover. That is so awesome that you were part of that and you helped bring that in. I think the last translator we talked to is Kanan Morris for Peach Blossom Paradise. And he was more on the outside and was waiting for them to like show the cover. And when he got shown the cover, he was like, oh, interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. And then he kind of came to understand why they picked it and had this thing. And having this you know, story about you being internally part of it and finding it yourself, that's, that's an awesome, that's an awesome story. Yeah, well, I was just really glad that that everyone agreed. Like as soon as this image was shown, everyone agreed. And weirdly enough, it does um, probably the least bad of all the covers is the first edition of Zama, which is very, very plain cover. Like it's not a cover mm -hmm. that would stick in your mind at all, but it does have sort of a thorny plant on it, you know? So yeah, like, there okay, is yeah. this, there is a it little calls bit back of that. To that. Yeah. Starting with the very, very opening of the book, it begins with this dedication that reads, a las victimas de la espera, or to the victims of expectation. And the uniting thread in the book is like Zama's hopes and their constant deferral, like not only his hopes for transfer, but for, you know, a woman or for respect, for meaning. Um, 
how did you see this this story depicting the way we might be victimized by our expectations? Well, uh, it's funny. A lot of people questioned that translation um, because <gasps> espera, la espera. Oh, oh. Well, it's one of those words that it's like there are these very, very, very simple words um, in Spanish that are peculiarly difficult to find an exact match for in English. The The classic mm-hmm. one for, in my mind is el olvido. Um, like in Spanish, you have la memoria, memory, and then you have el olvido, which is the opposite of memory. Um, where, whereas in English, you have memory, but then you have like a like you have forgetting or you have uh, oblivion or you have you don't have like a faculty like memory, but sure. the opposite of memory, you know, which somehow la memoria oh, y el, sure, el yeah. olvido um, imply, you both being simple mm. nouns. Um, and uh, la espera is a little bit like that. Esperar means to hope for, to wait for, um, to expect. Uh, you know, it has all of these, uh, you know, esperanza can be a woman's name. In that case, you would probably translate it hope. Right. Um, And I just didn't like the idea of to the victims of waiting. It doesn't have much impact in English. And also he's not just Mm -hmm. waiting. Waiting implies a passivity. And while there is a passivity in him, there is also these strong, you know, desires and expectations, you know, that he that he acts on in these mad ways. But he's not just some some dude, you know, it's not waiting for Godot, right? And that was the other thing that I, the other reason I wanted to avoid waiting because it's so Beckettian in a way. And yet I don't think that he was in any way aware of Beckett. Like Beckett doesn't get translated into Spanish until well after Zama. And as connected as he was, I don't think his English was that good. I I just don't think he could have been aware of Beckett at that point when he wrote Zama. And so I didn't want to create a false connection to waiting for Godot. And also he's not just waiting. There's Mm -hmm. a whole, um, there's ambition, there's scheming, there's, you know, there's all of this stuff and expectation really fulfilled that. And, um, Although I think in in Zama it's it's both waiting and expectation. There is the passivity as well, but I'm happy with it because now that it's sort of become a trilogy in this strange you know concept mm-hmm. that three books mm-hmm. that the writer never intended to be a trilogy are now widely viewed by everyone, including me, as a trilogy. Um, <laughs> the the victims of expectation comes to have like a completely different meaning in the next two books, but the word that really fits is still expectation, you know, and it becomes different kinds of expectation. Like it's no longer ambition. It could be like gender expectation, right? It could be um, lots of different ways in which Mm -hmm. expectation and the social structures that we're conditioned to expect um, kind of shape our ways of being in the world. So I was, I, I, ultimately, I'm quite satisfied with the way I translated that. And, you know, I think in, in Zama, he's, yeah, he's a victim of his own sense of who he should be in the world, that the world mm-hmm. just somehow doesn't, you know, uh, doesn't give him, right, his, his expectation of how the world should treat him and what role he should play in the world. And the world just consistently fails to, uh, to present him with that. Um, 
so it fits throughout. Um, and that's the trick when you're translating, right? Like you have this word that's so polyvalent and you have to find the mm-hmm. thing that will resonate most, you know, the one choice that will somehow resonate and click the most with everything that's going to follow. Sure. Were there any other instances like that in the book, like particular phrases that you had to really puzzle over? You were like, I need to get this right. Or was the dedication to that stand out? as Well, basically every word of the book. (laughs) I mean, like I just read this thing by Daisy Rockwell where some, some cheerful person had said, oh, translation, it's so nice. It's like having a cup of tea, whereas writing is like having to make biryani from scratch, you know? And Daisy Rockwell, the great translator from Hindi, said, said, basically, what are you talking about? Translation is like having to make biryani where you have to harvest the rice yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I will say that that Zama, the writing is... um, well, I did. I actually did this experiment that you can find on Publishers Weekly because um, it was right around the time that I was starting to work on Zama that everyone was starting to say then about translation what they're now saying about AI and Chat GPT and all of yeah. that. You know, which is that like, oh gosh, we'll never, we'll no longer have to do anything. The computers will take care of all of it for us, right? <laughs> Oh, and, oh, and and Silicon right, Valley right. dudes like Elon Musk will make tons of money from it. Isn't this a beautiful world we live in, right? Um, and so mm-hmm. I was, and it was just, there was this period where all of a sudden everyone was like, oh, Google Translate has, you know, totally ended language barriers. You know, I think that the the New York yeah. Times like <laughs> quoted some, you know, you know, major Google person to this effect. And so I thought, let me just put the first sentence of Zama into Google Translate and do that like every every few months, you know, oh, throughout wow, yeah. my process. Oh, and wow. I think I did it like six or seven times. I, I published a thing in Publishers Weekly that you could find like, can Google Translate a classic novel? And every single time it was wrong in a different way. And it actually, and it actually didn't get mm. bad. And when I say wrong, I mean, objectively, certifiably, like, completely wrong translation of the <laughs> the sentence that that could not be usable in any context right and ungrammatical and and um and by and but what was weird was that even amid this this cultural narrative of how oh it's all getting so much better you know the computers are getting so much better and it was getting worse and worse and worse the translation was getting worse and um it it's an interesting experiment because i recently went back to it because um the authors guild published the corpus of books that have been used to train AI, like hundreds of thousands of books. And Zama, oh, my translation yeah, of Zama right. was in that corpus. So so I thought basically oh these, these, you know, Google Translate and, and ChatGPT and everything, they're large language models. They just ingest huge amounts of data and, and, and then search through the data. And maybe now if I put the first, that first sentence, you know, in ChatGPT or in Google Translate, they'll recognize it because it was actually published that it'll somehow be able to make mm, the connection right. and it'll, and what I'll read is my translation. Um, because I always figured, you know, the day the oh, search yeah. engine finds my translation, this game will end and the search engine will use my translation, right? Because these are just elaborate forms of plagiarism mm-hmm. is what they are. Yeah. And, um, and Say, so, let's call it as uh, it is. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, sorry, uh, OpenAI chair Sam Altman, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> um, but I uh, hope you enjoy that, you know, your next $25 billion or whatever um, brings you true personal happiness. Um, but uh, so I actually did recently, I was like, huh, I wonder if it's found it yet. And I put it into ChatGPT, the first sentence in Spanish. And it was just as bad as ever. Like even with the, even even with the actual novel in the corpus, it still it still wasn't getting any better. So I guess that the that, test was open book, yeah, and they still yeah, failed right there, right there, and they still failed. So um, yeah, no, it was all very hard. And I would say one other thing that I always like to comment on with uh, Zama, and this was very gra- ben, later Benjamin Kunkel kind of played on this in the review that he did in the New Yorker, which was very gratifying. Um, one of Zama's problems is that he is un americano. And anyone who's studied the Spanish Empire, mm-hmm. one of the great structural deficits of the Spanish Empire was that the metropolis was so terrified of the colonial inhabitants of the empire who were born in the empire's territories um, that they would begin identifying politically with those territories rather than with the metropolis, um, that it would never allow them um, any degree of power within the imperial apparatus. So in order to be a, a governor general or a highly ranked official, almost always you had to have been born and educated in imperial Spain because the empire wanted to be sure that you had that identity. The the U.S. State Department, for the same reason, constantly shuffles bureaucrats all over the world all the time, putting them in places that they know nothing about because it doesn't want them to form too close an attachment to where they start identifying with the place they're living in as a place they're they're representing. Um, But for for the rulers of, you know, places like uh, New Spain and... um, the territories of the Southern Cone, um, it was it was it was difficult because there you were you were from a leading family you were very rich you were very powerful but you had very little opportunity to participate in the government of your territory just by the fact of having been born in the Americas mm-hmm. and the people who were born in the Americas were called mm-hmm. Americanos um, and so as I was translating this book I was like well this is American. But English has taken such a swerve, um, U.S. English has taken such a swerve in the last century or so um, to turn the word American into the exclusive province of the United States, right? (laughs) As opposed to the hemisphere, which is what the word means, um, that I thought if I have Don Diego identifying himself as an American in like regular, you know, capital A American, people are going to be like, why is this Yankee with a Spanish name? You know, I like people (laughs) I've had, I've read reviews of books that where people were just like so clueless about what was going on in the book. And I just couldn't bear to have someone ask me, Mm. so where in the United States is Don Diego de Zama from, you know? And um, and so and of course, Americano with a capital A is a Starbucks coffee drink. Right. Like it's just one of these one of these words. Yeah. So I finally just decided that I would leave it in the Spanish way, lowercase yeah. and Americano. And um, and uh, which was actually really a- extremely interesting because then in the next book, uh, and I hadn't even really thought about how I was going to translate the silenciary yet when I did Zama. But in the silenciary, 
which is a post-war no, set, a novel set in uh, in the, basically in the 1950s or the late 1940s, but more like the 1950s. He starts talking about American, but in the sense of people from the United States um, and the cultural invasion from the United States. Sure. And so there I was able to use the word American in the English sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was very glad to be able to make that distinction you know, which is also hopefully kind of an educational distinction for readers. And and Benjamin Kunkel in his review of Zama was like, is this the great American novel, right? So. Oh, nice. <laughs> like like t- bringing the word full circle back to what it's supposed to be. We've already touched on this. Um, you mentioned that this book sort of is an idea of a refutation of the idea of the historical novel. And it's specifically the novel that separates it into three parts, 1790, 1794, and 1799. So it is bringing up sort of history into itself. But how, can you can you say more about how this book engages with history on a new or especially oppositional term? Well, I think, first of all, um, that, that, that tripartite division that you mentioned is mm-hmm. part of what makes people see the, the three novels, Sama, The Silenciary, and The Suicides, which are the, the which are published in loose sequence, you know, within 15 years of each other, um, as a trilogy, because they they proceed forward in time, just sure. like Zama does. It's like a, a large scale replica of that mm-hmm. movement towards the future. Um, and the the sort of haunting and shocking thing about that larger structure is that just as Zama, when we read it from the perspective of, you know, the 20th century, we know that this whole imperial structure that dictates all of Don Diego de Sama's perceptions, ambitions, goals, aspirations, desires is about to crumble. Um, Mm -hmm. And that within a decade, within a decade of that uh, 1799 uh, chapter, um, Argentina will be engaged in an ultimately successful battle for its independence from Spain. And the whole structure that that he's in is will be, you know, largely washed away. And we know that as we read the novel. So in a weird way, it's a historical novel that's about the future, right? <laughs> Which most, most historical novels are about the past. Yeah, yeah. But this historical novel is about the immediate future. And so then when you apply that same kind of thinking to the trilogy novels, the last of which happens in like, you know, 1968, it happens like the year it's written. It's incredibly contemporary to the moment of its writing. And then see what's going to happen in Argentina, you know, in the next. It also, the the whole project seems to have this kind of prescience uh, concerning what was about to happen, right? Um, which was an obvious prescience, a dark a prescience, dark an obvious prescience yeah. where Zama is concerned because it's, you know, the novel's written in the 20th century. But how did he achieve that other dark prescience, you know, about mm-hmm. what was going to happen after the yeah. third novel was published? So in that way, it's, it is, um, it's a historical novel, but history is not in the past, right? I mean, I think that's the real lesson yeah. of these yeah. novels that don't yeah. ever imagine that the past is over. Don't ever imagine that the past is sealed off from us. Don't ever imagine that that the past is not somehow also our now, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, 
and and then also I think the way that it is written is it's written in such a fragmentary way from such a unique individual perspective. Um, whereas like most historic, when you think of the historical novel, you think of the vast sweeping, you know, war and peace, Napoleon at Waterloo, yeah. you know, the cast of millions. <laughs> and this is history as just one very jagged, fragmented, sick, twisted, tormented individuals, you know, like, <laughs> Like, like extremely limited perceptions, right? Which is how history is, is experienced actually by all of us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that first person perspective is part of what makes the book feel so immediate and different than like your uh, conventional historical narrative. Um, I was interested in how you approached, well, the translation in general, but also that first person voice, because you write a little bit in the preface about searching for an English counterpart to the voice that could kind of guide you or inspire you. Is that something you do for all of your translations? Just kind of what was that process like? Well, yeah, I mean, I think most translators that uh, that I know of, you know, have this um, quest to find because if you don't really, if the if there's not a compelling unified voice within a work of fiction, um, it will fail. You have to have that internal logic of the voice, right? Mm-hmm. And so this was a tough one because I, I did reread Beckett, um, you know, because there is something of the Beckettian narrators, you know, like lost within his own language kind of thing going on. But of course, um, this is also the 18th century. So I Mm -hmm. also read like British narratives. I mean, reading 18th century Spanish didn't really help me because I needed archaisms that would read in English. So I was looking for English language 18th century texts that would give me, because the flavor, the archaic flavor is a little bit there. He doesn't really sure. do anything very ha- heavy handed with archaic language, but he does employ mm. it in a kind of subtle way. Um, mm. And so I wanted to be able to, like just certain sentence structures that would be typical of the period, um, maybe a little bit of vocabulary. So, and then, and then you just have to develop a feeling for it, you know, like, like if, if you're in conversation with someone, you, you start getting a sense of what they would and would not say. Right. And, um, similarly, uh, or, you know, a lifelong friend, right. Um, and then you notice when they start behaving differently, right? Like this doesn't seem like you, if there's some distress or something. So it's almost mm-hmm. like that when you're translating with a character like Zama and, and you just want it all to have that almost tactile, like visceral sense of, yes, this is his voice, you know, like an, you know, like, like an actor playing a role or something. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot goes into that. A lot goes into that. Is that does that come through multiple drafts? Like, do you write it down and say this doesn't feel right, and so then many you drafts. have to try it again? So many drafts. Okay. <laughs> so many oh drafts. Um, <laughs> reading it, rereading it. I mean, I think for a long time. I mean, and one of the ways that I work as a translator um, is if I hit a thorny patch because you know translation is weird. Like, um, like even that first sentence half of it is so easy that it's always exactly the same. It was always exactly the same in all of my versions. And it's always exactly the same in all the Google translate versions. It's the other half of it that like is completely, you know, 
And mm-hmm. so one of the things that I'll do is lay down like an initial draft where I just leave all of the tricky stuff in Spanish. Like if I find myself having to think too hard about anything, I just leave it in Spanish and, and move on to the next. Mm-hmm. And and then as I go through, I sort of, you know, on second reading, I get more of a sense of what it needs to be in English. But some some Spanish in that text, even the fourth, the fifth, I, there were still like passages in Spanish where I was just like, what is going on? What is he doing? What is he thinking? What's happening? Um, and and then Edwin was just extraordinary in terms of, because I was also very, very invested in, when you're translating a book that's so strange and prickly like Zama, um, one temptation is to kind of domesticate it and make it sound right, which yeah. is the, to make it sound right, you know, to make it sound like what we would expect as an English language reader. To, to go the chat GPT route, right? Yeah. Like, let's reduce this to cliche. Um, and so I was resisting that very strenuously and trying to retain as much of the strangeness or to create as much strangeness as the original creates. And so Edwin's, you know, final sort of guiding edit really helped me to see where that was working, where that wasn't working. Because after a while, when you're so immersed in the mm-hmm. voice, you get used to things yeah. that somebody else on first reading, they'll accept everything else, but they'll be like, not this. And and Edwin <laughs> really gave me that in a very, very brilliant way. His edit was, was even after all my drafts and everything, Ed, Edwin's edit was invaluable. I want to read a little section of the book towards the beginning that I think set up, I think this is a really good um, introduction to what this person, how this person thinks and how they act um, to give a little context to those that haven't read it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's sort of spying on this uh, group of native women who are naked and bathing. And one of them starts to uh, chase him. Uh, all I could do was unleash the full force of my thwarted spirit upon this spy. First of all, let's just mention that he calls her a spy for noticing him spying on her, but that's besides the point. <laughs> Veering left, I pitched in amongst the trees, and she was too startled to get away. Naked as she was, I took her by the throat, strangling her cry. I slapped her until my hands were dry of sweat before sending her sprawling to the ground with a shove. She curled with her back to me. Delivering a kick to her buttocks, I left. With me went my anger, already yielding to bitter self-reproach. Character. My character. Ha! My hand may strike a woman's cheek, but it is I who will endure the blow, for I shall have done violence to my own dignity. Dude. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we're seeing, you know, we're seeing how colonists, colonizers view themselves yes. as the victim, right? Yeah. It's just, it's so mm-hmm. um, unwieldy in its, um, in its own self. It is completely absorbed in this person that we can both very relate to his struggles about trying to succeed and always failing. And like, that's, that's a very human thing. And at the same time, recognize his disillusionment about the rest of the world around him. And I I think it really rides this line interesting. And it reminded me a lot of um, a book that is incredibly different from this one, but has a similar character that we have covered on the show. And that is In a Lonely Place, which is another first person novel. And we're in in the head of this serial killer the whole time. That's just 
talking like a lunatic. And at the same time, we can recognize those feelings as very human in ourselves and at the same time see the disillusionment around him. And I loved getting to pick up mm-hmm. another book like that because that was when I was like, this is like a lightning in a bottle moment and it's fun to find more of those bottles. Well, it's interesting that that you would compare him to a book narrated by a serial killer um, <laughs> because, because I, you know, I, I, it, when you read the book, like he commits rape, he beats up women uh, all the time. Um, he kills some dogs. Uh, he doesn't really kill people. I mean, I think that that my overall impression of him having been so close to him for so long is still that he is sort of a victim. But even that passage you just read, even in his moment of self-loathing, there's a smugness, right? Yeah. Like he's actually angry at himself for something he did. And in that anger, he tells himself, I'm the real victim here. He literally like attacked and beat a naked woman and then said to himself, I'm the real victim here, you know? So um, there's like an Mm -hmm. internal and an external violence um, there that it it can be um, that you can kind of forget about um, Mm -hmm. sometimes but that the novel persistently reminds you of. Just kind of more on that point of like reflecting the colonialist mentality, the way that the book depicts the caste system, um, the role of women in society. Zama's very intrigued by many different women, some real, some probably imagine as the book goes on. How did you navigate those subjects uh, as a translator given that like the modern readership has a more heightened sensitivity to some of those issues around like race or women and how they're depicted um given that the book originally came out in the in the 50s well it sort of reminds me um of uh like the herman melville story about the slave revolt benito sereno the herman melville story benito sereno which is an absolutely brilliant depiction of racism and a slave revolt. But because the story is narrated from the perspective of a white sea captain, um, it's easy also to read it, and it has been read, as a, depi- as, as a racist document, um, as mm-hmm. a document that perpetuates racism, um, because it's about racism. Um, and so there is always that... Um, that, that very difficult thing, right? When you're inside the head of a narrator mm-hmm. who is intensely sexist, racist, you know, patriarchal, settler colonist, everything you want to call him. Um, and the narrator in, and the, the novelist's job is to expose that person, you know, to show you how that person thinks, how even their self-loathing is a kind of smugness, you know, how they've tied themselves up in these knots. Um, but then you can also say, oh, you're perpetuating it, right? You're perpetuating these attitudes by representing them. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I think that I've had that problem the worst, much worse than with Zama, with The Suicides, which is the final volume in the trilogy, which is narrated by a sort of um, Hefner-esque playboy, you know, who's just sort of like drooling at every, you know, at every stacked babe who comes down the street, you know. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and, and so it's, so it's very weird because 
the sexism and racism of the 18th century is not the same as the sexism and racism of my own lifetime. Uh And so I recognize it as this sort of historical characterization. And you can read Zama and think, oh, we have come a long way since then, right? Like (laughs) in some ways, you know, we have. Um, But when you read like it's 1968 and he's a swinging dude and, you know, that is a little harder to take. Um, I, I do firmly believe, even though I don't think they're always read this way, to be honest, um, either in or outside of Argentina, I think that all three books are dissections of toxic masculinity mm-hmm. that are that their goal is to mm. expose these thought processes. And, and uh, the racial aspect is particularly interesting because what happens in the trilogy, and, and this was one of the things of... Um, Lucrecia Martel's film that that she sort of reminded everybody um, Argentina has been so whitened as a country, so deliberately whitened by a president who came to the United States in the 19th century and said national greatness uh, will lie in in expelling and eliminating anything that is not white from your demographics and bringing in white immigration, you know, hence the arrival of all the Italians like Antonio Di Benedetto's, uh, you know, he was a part of that whitening of Argentina. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when people watch Lucrecia Martel's film and they see in Argentina where there's all of this indigenous presence, where there are black slaves everywhere, um, th- this was mm-hmm. not... You know, Brazil, sure, we have that in our imagined image of historical and and contemporary Brazil. Argentina, no. There were many, many black slaves. There was a huge slave population in Argentina. And Di Benedetto reminds us of that in Zama. And so so it is just the fact that they are present is like a a, a resistance to the whitening of the historical past to make it... you know, resemble the historical present, which is still something that's going on. So that that in itself is compelling. And then also what the trilogy does is that because you've read Zama as the first book, you start being aware, like in the silenciary, he has a dream where there is like a black voice, the voice of a 19th mm-hmm. century black revolutionary in his dream. But there's no black people there's no indigenous people around him. Uh-huh. And by the time we get to the suicides, you know, the the absolute whiteness of Mendoza is completely consolidated. So when you read the three books in sequence, you 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 start feeling these absences, sure. right? Where where did all these people go? What happened to yeah. them? You know, where are they? So in that sense, I I feel like he, yes, there's this horrific toxicity to these characters, but they're also, um, there's also an analysis of the encroaching toxicity of these historical patterns in Argentina. Um, and, and with the, with the feminist question, it's a little more difficult because Di Benedetto is really also reflecting himself. Um, the character in the suicides who I find the most problematic mm. is also the most like Di Benedetto. Mm. He's a journalist. He's covering a story. Mm. He's very much in Mendoza. Um, but all you could do is, um, you know, that's where I think uh, it's very good to, to write about the work, to, to make sure that it gets contextualized in a way that foregrounds um the extent to which it is actually combating these things that its narrators appear mm-hmm. to espouse or embody, right? No, I mean, I think you you 
found a way to thread the needle because it definitely reads as a um, critique. And I mean, certainly the, the fact that uh, we go through this sort of adulterous, potentially adulterous um, dalliance that he's having at the beginning. And then we, we enter in later into a, a phantom relationship. Um, it seems like he's, he's well aware of like this projection of, femininity and and the fact that his actual wife is um just this mystical presence who floats in and out of his mind sometimes he kind of hates her sometimes she's like the only positive thing he can think about um but his vision of her has like nothing to do with who these people actually are right everything is kind of projection but especially the women are are projection Mm -hmm. one of the core tensions in the novel between is between the margin and the center. We talked a little bit already about how, um, you know, Dimitri spent much of his life avoiding the literary epicenter of Buenos Aires. And Zama is a little bit of the opposite, where he always dreams of moving to that epicenter of Spain. But as the book progresses, he actually gets driven further and further into the countryside to where when you start at the beginning and you think he's in the margins, that's much closer to the center than where he uh, <laughs> he finds himself at the conclusion. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think the story reflects his own experience with marginalization at all? Well, it, it, you know, given the, what we know about his own life, there it is really interesting that it, it you know it's somebody in the hinterlands yearning to be in the power center, yeah. you know, but who just gets pushes back further and further into the hinterlands. Um, so, in some way, that plot structure might be an expression of his own. Um, fundamental mistrust, you know, of the power centers. Um, I mean, there's no doubt that the truth about himself, if if we can, I mean, Zama is not a person who's interested in discovering the truth about himself, but the the truths about him that we discover in that final section um, are infinitely more valuable than anything we could have discovered if he were to have followed a more conventional trajectory of, you know, going to Madrid and becoming a courtier, you know. Um, uh, mm. So um, there, there is the, the, again, the narration is sort of pushing back against his drive uh, to get to those powerful epicenters. Um, and I know I completely agree. I think it's a brilliant question. Um, there is this extensive exploration of what it is to be marginal in a society, what it is to be pushed to the fringes, mm-hmm. what it is to be neglected. Um, and I actually felt like I understood that um, better with regard to the next two novels, because I actually went to Mendoza. I still haven't been to Paraguay, longing to go, by the way, mm. longing to go, but I've never been to Paraguay. But mm. that makes perfect sense because Di Benedetto <laughs> had never been to Paraguay when he wrote Zama. So I didn't feel that he only went like oh, years yeah, later. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I didn't feel like I needed to. But to translate the next two novels, I really felt like I needed to go to Mendoza. And walking around Mendoza, um, one of the things that I noticed, and I'm not sure how this relates to your question, but I have to bring it up. Um, the, the paper that Di Benedetto worked for is actually called Los Andes, the Andes, right? Mm. And the thing about Mendoza is it's oh. this, it's a wine town. And now it's a big tourist town. And it's an extraordinarily wonderful place to visit because you get a wine driver and they drive you from vineyard to vineyard and you sample glorious vintages and eat delicious food. And it's an extraordinary pleasant way to spend a day, but, or a day or two, but in the background at all times is the Andes, which is the most sublime, 
imaginable mountain range, you know, capped with snow, ringing you at a great distance, but but this kind of like fiery white, you know, crown all around you. And um, that's always there in the background. You look out a window and you're like, oh, it's the Andes. It's the, you know, the Andes is everywhere. Um, and, uh, and so that made me think, you know, in these two final novels, both of which take place in an unnamed town that is clearly Mendoza in the same way that in Zama, it's an unnamed, you know, country that is clearly Paraguay. Um, that, you know, here in this marginal place, you have this glory, you know, that's there all the time. And somehow the characters in the books are aware of it without ever mentioning it, right? The reader in Mendoza would be aware of it without ever mentioning it. But it wasn't clear to me at all until I went there, you know? And and oh. then I was like, oh yeah, every mm. person in this book, like they walk out the door and the Andes are rising in the mm. distance. The, the There's snow on the Andes. There's this mm. extraordinary scene, you know, of these mountains yeah. um, that are present for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, sometimes the marginal is not, you know, lowly and insignificant. Yeah. And in the third section of this book, when he heads out into the frontier in search of um, this really great invention, Vicuña Porto, this criminal who's accused of setting the city on fire, but it kind of becomes clear that Vicuña is more than a person, right? He's like this idea, he's a myth. And much like the new world itself is. And so what did you kind of see as the purpose of that character in bringing his existential crisis into another phase? Well, I mean, it's, you know, we we also, like every every frontier settler community has its evil enemy, right? Like the, the terrible predator, mm-hmm. you know, who's out there, you know, and who's going to every Western, every, you know, I mean, in some ways... Zama's a kind of a Western, right? You could see it as a, um, it's written in the period when Western movies are at their heyday. This is a guy who watches Hollywood a lot. But but then it becomes very clear that second half that that Vicuña Porto is a sort of reflection of Zama and is also, and also Zama becomes complicit Mm -hmm. with him, right? Um, As a way of disguising his own, he's terrified of him and that makes him complicit with him. There's this, identification and complicity. And it's also Vicuña Porto who saves Zama's life, right? At the very end, if we believe that Zama's life is in fact saved, right? Because the ending of the book is very inconclusive. And um, I really thought that, you know, this was the the last gasp. There's no way he's going to survive. He's just mutilated himself. Yeah. And he's not going to be able to drag himself away mm-hmm. from his mutilation. And I was very surprised. I remember when I was doing my research on the book that some critics wrote about it as if Zama somehow does survive that final page. And when I was translating it, I was really, really sure that he does not, that that has got to be the end for him and that we've really seen some, that the novel has taken us all the way through to someone's final demise and it's just sort of like a bitter irony of that demise that he still hopes he's going to survive somehow you know even as he's lying there in the sand bleeding to death um from his from his fingers Mm -hmm. and then and then and then i met i met lucrecia martel (laughs) yes we need to get um, to this when and i yeah and i had a conversation with her jealous oh my gosh she's the most extraordinary person 
And um, I and I said, well, he, I mean, he dies at the end, right? I mean, you know, of course he dies at the end. And she said to she said to me, you think so? Um, and we and and we actually had this conversation before I saw her film. Uh huh. And then when I saw the film oh, and I wow. saw the way she ended it, and I remembered how she herself was like confronting a cancer battle while she was editing that yeah. film, you know, right. Um, right. I was like, it is crucially important that we, that we allow for the possibility that Don Diego de Sama survives, <laughs> you know, at the end of the she changed, she completely changed my reading of that yeah. ending. I Actually, will say that. I really agree with that point. Cause when I read the book, I, um, I felt like it was sort of, uh, something supernatural where like, it was almost like a heavenly, hand pulling him a bit into the afterlife and in the movie it feels more like a rebirth like he is supposed to now live anew in that way um and in your interview with lucretia martel you mentioned Mm -hmm. how the movie captures moments in the book that adapts them differently and in uniquely cinematic ways how how do you think martel was able to be so effective in approaching this work and did any of her choices surprise you as someone that has such an intimate relationship with with the text well, I mean, it's very interesting because I knew she was making a film the whole time I was translating the book. And oh, okay. I admire her intensely as a yeah. filmmaker. And I also see she's so much like Di Benedetto, yeah. like everything we've just been saying about Di Benedetto. Her films are about Salta, which right. is this marginal, tiny town on the regions yep. that, you know, um, she she writes about young women, you know, who are powerless, right? Um, that her films have these long silences, right? You know, yes. she is... She is like Antonio Di Benedetto reincarnated as a filmmaker in some weird way, in all these many different ways. And um, so I was very excited that she was making this film. And um, and I also thought it was going to be supremely difficult because the novel's so interior. How do you make a film of that? Yeah. And um, so every decision that she made um, just astonished me in its like perfection. Yes. Um, the idea that she just turned the novel inside out. So we're not in his interiority at all. We see him uh, from the perspective of the world around him, right? He is just this, um, you know, we see the great shining world around him, right? That we only get narrow glimpses of from within his little Mm -hmm. cave-like mind. Um, And the movie gives us that whole, you know, soaring context. Yeah. So when at the end of the movie, it's it's actually an indigenous child who turns to him and says, Quieres vivir, right? Right. Um, To ask that question. I mean, what an unbelievable choice to make as a filmmaker. What a triumph. What an extraordinary uh, just way of taking material and... And there's nothing in the book that says that didn't happen, right? Like yeah. there's no, there's no way in which she she sort of like makes him a different person. Although she does very much diminish his personal violence in the movie. Um, she doesn't. She, there's no rape scenes. There's mm-hmm. no. He doesn't kill dogs. You know any of the things like that. Um, so she does transform him as a character, but um, she also shows us so many things about him that we know to be true from the book. But that um, that she amplifies or she she transmutes in ways that they become more intelligible. Uh, just mm-hmm. oh, what a freaking triumph of a movie that is! It really is. I almost expected it to be more different because I thought like this book is untranslatable to the medium of film, 
And she keeps so many of the general story beats and storylines in there. And you point out sort of the brilliant differences where there's a constant mention of something that's crawling around on people's like necks, a spider or something, and people will like brush it off or something. It's like this thing waiting to be bitten. And there was a part that I specifically took a picture of as one of the things that I was most interested in. There's one where someone brushes a spider off their neck while they're asleep and the spider lands to the ground with its hands, with a few of its legs uh, knocked off and then Zama crushes it. And I was looking at that in that uh, section after finishing the book where it ends with Zama without his hands swept away into nothing. And I was like, oh, that's, I, I didn't catch that when I got to the end, but I, could, I was able to realize that a little bit later. There is that sort of parallel. So Zama's become the spider. A the little spider bit, yeah. The limbs, yeah. Yeah, the mutilation of the spider mm-hmm. translates into the mutilation of him. Yeah, but, you know, in the in the movie, it's someone talking about being bitten and then they're sort of being infected. And it's it's such an effective translation of that into something that is more cinematic. And I don't know why I didn't expect her to be able to, like, just take this text and be able to make it into a movie so perfectly. Um, instead, I thought she would have to change so much of it. But because she... she I remember when I first met Cassia and I asked her what her favorite movie was, because I'm always someone that's like, list your favorite <laughs> movies. And Cassia's never someone that likes to list favorites of anything. And she said, well, maybe La Cienega by Lucrecia Martel. <laughs> and yeah. a little bit later on, we watched that movie together. And I was, there was that first scene where they're all drinking by the pool and someone falls and cuts yeah. themselves. And the discomfort and the framing and the colors was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And even just thinking about that one scene, I don't know why I thought she would have to change the entire narrative of this book to make it a movie. She's so perfectly matched to the the text and stuff. It's it's amazing. But we have to remember, like, she does change the book. She changes the book a lot, but all of the changes Mm. are consistent with the internal logic yeah. of the book, right? Like the book is so directed into this future, like that, you know, 1790, 1794, 1791. Yes. And these, these, and she just, that time in the, in the movie is completely different. There's no, there's no futurity, right? He's just moving through this extremely intense present, but we can see how that is not, um, that is not changing the facts of the book. That's changing the perspective, yeah. the lens, right? The So everything mm-hmm. that she does do to the material is somehow latent within the material itself. Um, so, which is why, mm-hmm. you know, I just have this strange sense about that, that particular connection to, between book and film. Like when you think about adaptation, usually you're like, oh, the the film was faithful to the book or the film changed the book or the film. But it's very rare where, and a number of film critics said this, they said, to understand the film, you need to read the book. And I would actually say that now to understand the book, you need to see the film, right? (laughs) That they've sort of merged into a single work of art, right? That the film doesn't replace or... Mm -hmm or take over from the book, the film completes the book in a certain way. And you can you can experience the two of them as a coherent whole, which I just don't know of very many other film book pairings that yeah. I would say that about. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And I was, I was, because she's famous for her sound design. So I was excited to see specifically what she would do with it. Um, In La Cenega, I think of those, the the chairs dragging across outside the pool. That sound is unforgettable. And in this movie, I felt like the sound of um, when Zama goes to have his little like tea parties with uh, Luciana and um, her, her slave is fanning them the entire time. And you hear the, this like creak of the fan um, over this scene. And it really intervenes on the whole dialogue and the whole like context of that conversation completely shifts, I feel like, in the film because she brings the presence of this underclass of, of all these people that are serving Spain and are serving the crown um, in the colonies. And again, it's that discomforting kind of feeling that you get mm-hmm. from her work i love the the sound detail that sticks with me a lot from zama is um they all sort of um there are these brushes or sort of brooms like twig brooms that stand next to the door and every time they enter the house they kind of hit their boots with it and you get this rustling sound of like the hitting the boots with the broom Mm -hmm. it's such an incredible detail i don't know why i don't know why it's such an incredible detail it's an incredible detail yeah Right. And it's something you, that could be in the book, even though it wasn't. It's like the full inhabiting of the historical strangeness, right, of that time and place. But, for example, yes. in, in both, like, this is an absolutely and completely Catholic-controlled region and time. Mm-hmm. And both book and movie sort of, like, there's one priest... I mean, in Zama, the Catholicism, the power of the church is a little more present. But Martel is literally almost doing like an alternative history where the Catholic church is barely there, right? It's like a literal, like, let's not talk about the Catholic church. Let's talk about the slaves and the Indians. And, you know, like, let's Mm -hmm. place our historical emphasis in completely different areas. Yeah, that's a good point. Just to kind of wrap up our our conversation here, I just want to give the readers maybe like a little taste of this trilogy that is um, in process of still being published in English. Why do you think it is a trilogy of waiting? Because you said he didn't really think of it as a loose trilogy. Kind of where does Zama fit into this overall picture? Well, um, nobody even suggested that it was a trilogy until well after Antonio de Benedetto's death. But the person who did make the suggestion was Juan Jose Sire, who was one of the mm-hmm. greatest Argentine writers, yeah. you know, of the of the same period. And I, I think the reason that everyone accepts it, I mean, the same thing, ha- it's very interesting, the same thing happens with the Beckett trilogy. Beckett hated the idea that Malloy, Malone dies, and the Unnameable were a trilogy. But when Barney Rossett writes to him and says, you know, people really tie these three books together, and we'd like to publish them as a single volume... He said, "Okay, as long as you don't use the word trilogy, right?" So at least, Be- at least Beckett sort of acknowledged the concept, you know, that people were seeing these three books as being related. Whereas, um, you know, as far as I know, in, in De Benedetto's lifetime, no one ever suggested that this was a trilogy. Um, but with the sort of historic periodization, and these being the three novels that lead up to this terrible time in Argentina and terrible time for De Benedetto. And with their thrust, you know, towards the future, um, you can see how it came about. And then it just helps you to read all three of them. Yeah. um, Because there's a kind of progression. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I said somewhere that it's almost like 
it's the same being um, in all three cases who's like, um, you know, dropped into the the medium of a different historical period and and becomes therefore very different. But in all three cases, it's, it's the same essential, mm-hmm. you know, potentiality of being, maybe we could say. I mean, it's almost like a chemistry experiment, you know, where you put the, the same ingredient, you know, and combine <laughs> it with, with three different things. Um, and it's it's a it's a it's always a lone man. He's always about the same age, you know, say around his thirties. And um, there's always this kind of like internal, you know, te- entanglement um, with and the rest of the world being sort of at a distance. Um, but because it's three such different time periods, and it's three time periods where people's expectations were so different. Um, the the three novels do end up being very different and having very different voices. Obviously, the one set in the 1950s doesn't try to be archaic the way Zama is. And the one set in the 1950s isn't full of pop cultural references, whereas the one set in 1968 is full of pop cultural references. You know, <laughs> the last thing you would ever expect from Tivetta Dento, mm-hmm. but there it is. It's full of, you know, sci-fi movies and, you know, uh, yeah, all kinds of other, but but direct pop cultural references like to Fellini and to by name naming all of the, the yeah, um, oh, wow. and so they're they're very different, um, but they they echo each other in so many ways. Um, mm-hmm. Like in you were just talking about mutilation in Zama in the suicides. Um, there the body of a man who is suspected of having been su- committed suicide gets disinterred and then for reasons no one understands the hands are cut off of the dead body um which is i think uh-huh. like the clearest reflection yeah oh. and and no and no and you never there find go. out really yeah. why you know you never really find out uh, exactly who did it it seems to have been this like sinister group you know who were um but there, there are these echoes, right, that go, um, and and yeah. not to the extent of Bolaño, but to a certain extent. Um, I mean, Chris Andrews' book about Bolaño is called "The Expanding Universe," and he was interested in the way that, like, a certain sequence of events or situation in Bolaño's work will happen again and again and again, but in totally different ways. You know, so you start recognizing these mm. things as you read more and more of his work. You're like, oh, that's just like what happened over there. But now it's completely different. And I think that Di Benedetto does that throughout his whole body of work. But it's most pronounced when you look at the echoes and interchanges and connections between these three books. Yeah. So, um, and, yeah. and, and funny intriguing. because Zama is somehow yeah. the showstopper. And you could read the next two books almost as like footnotes to Zama. Um, But uh, in a way, if you think of the three of them as being a single achievement, a single narrative achievement, that is an expansion of Zama. I think that's more, everyone's Mm -hmm. like, well, where's the second Zama? You know, because you're looking for like that same, you know, um, but it's almost like an expanding Zama you know, is the way to read it. Well, in any case, I like footnotes. So even if me that too, is the case. Me too, me too. Is there anything else that we didn't, we didn't get to that you want to mention about the book or the translation? I feel like I'm really glad for Zama that it didn't come out in English until NYRB existed because yeah. there's basically no better mm-hmm. context 
you know, to create expectations, right? If we're talking about the creation of expectations, the creation yeah, yeah. of the expectations that the NYRB list creates, right? Um, shape a context for the reception mm-hmm. of a book like Zama, like nothing else could have, right? Like it's, you know, what if Zama came out like from Penguin Random House, you know, with like a shiny cover, like <laughs> what would have happened to it? You know, like probably not very much. Right. But, with NYRB, it finds exactly the kinds of readers that could have connected to a book like that, right? So I'm just so infinitely happy that um, it is an NYRB book because honestly, I feel like it couldn't have had the reception mm-hmm. that it had any other way. I don't think there's any other company or or a series, you know, that would have cued people in as to what this is and the way that being part of that NYRB. You know what I mean? Well, of yeah, course, absolutely. you guys know what I mean. More than any, more yeah. than anybody else, you know what, exactly what I mean. <laughs> yeah, and thankfully that you're able to put out all three of these yes. books rather yeah. than just one individually. Yeah. Which another place might have been, well, neither of these is a Zama, so let's just forget about it, you know? So you also have that commitment, that commitment to the, the, the work and the continuing. Now, NYRB is just such a fantastic, fantastic thing that we have in our culture and i'm so glad you guys are celebrating it yes and thank you for committing to translating these books and for coming thank on the show you. we really thank appreciate you for it doing the show it's such a such an honor that's our show thank you for tuning in to unburied books our theme music is composed by john hookstra and join us again in two weeks when we discuss inferno by dante alighieri 